Welcome to the Security Sessions podcast, brought to you by Talist and hosted by me, Nera Jones. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the technologies, people, and processes behind information security and delving into topics like data security, remote access, and digital transformation. We'll be speaking to Talis and industry experts to bring you fresh perspectives on how to navigate the world of cloud security. Today, we have a bonus episode for you entitled The Rise of the Sovereign Cloud. There are now more than 1,800 data compliance laws that companies must comply with on a global scale. This surge in regulation is creating a shift towards the containment and localization of data, and we will continue to see this more and more in the years to come. The public will become increasingly aware of these challenges too, with individual data sovereignty on the horizon. This will allow individuals to control where their data is and how it is used, strengthening the correlation between identity and data protection. In this bonus episode, Rob Ellis, Vice President of Sales EMEA at Thales Cloud Security, will be interviewed by Neil Hughes to discuss the rise of the sovereign cloud. They discuss how data sovereignty is not just about localization. It's ensuring that nation states can store their data in their own country and control access to it. I will now hand over to Neil Hughes. Welcome back to the Tech Talks Daily Podcast. There's a lot I want to be talking about today, such as how data sovereignty is not just about localization, but how it's ensuring that nation states have the ability to store their data in their own country and control access to it. Also, on a global scale, how there are more than 1,800 different data compliance laws out there at the moment that every business is challenged with complying with. So I want to learn more about how the surge in regulation is creating a shift towards the containment and localization of data, not to mention how, with the public become increasingly aware of these challenges, what the individual data sovereignty on the horizon looks like too. So buckle up and hold on tight, because today I'm going to beam your ears all the way to Nottingham in the East Midlands of the UK, where Rob Ellis from a company called Tarless is going to be joining me in conversation about all this and much more because we're going to demystify this world and hopefully learn a few things along the way too. So a massive warm welcome to the show. Can you tell the listeners a little about who you are and what you do? Yes. Uh, hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on the show. So I work in cybersecurity. I've worked in the industry for over 25 years, um, long before it was actually called cybersecurity. And during this time, I've focused mainly on the aspects around digital identities, encryption, and key management in in startups, in large global companies. And like many others in, in the cyberspace today, got a strong focus on securing cloud infrastructures, helping customers make the journey to cloud in a secure manner. Today, I'm responsible for Tales uh, cloud protection and licensing business in EMEA which essentially focuses on the protection of sensitive data in all its various geysers and locations and the management of digital identities. It's an incredibly cool part of the industry you're working in here. When you're talking about digital identities, encryption, security, etc., 
as a, a superhero guy, I've got to ask, what's your origin story? What, what lit the spark in you and put you on that path? What got you so interested in that world? Good question. P- probably pure chance. Yeah. Um, I actually studied economics and then I did a, a PhD in, in 18th century German literature and philosophy. So not probably not the start you would expect. Yeah. And, and I stumbled by chance into the early days of the smart card industry in the mid-90s. Uh, this was when credit cards was, were still uh, encoded magnetic stripe cards, if you can remember those, yeah. and, and were just making the leap to chip cards using cryptography. And that, that was really my introduction to, um, to crypto and everything around um, public key infrastructure and the world of cryptography. And, and then uh, the, dot, the dot-com boom of the late 90s and early 2000s kicked in. Um, I got involved with a Canadian startup providing what are called hardware security modules, which are basically cryptographic hardware engines which secure crypto operations that we all we all know and use every day, like payment transactions, digital signatures, and so on. And this turned out to be a good choice or or a lucky choice um, because the technologies we launched back then in in um, uh, in those early days of in the meantime become kind of the market standard. Um, so as far as my career is concerned, been through a lot of acquisition, expansion. There's been a lot of consolidation in the industry and a dozen or so acquisitions uh, later, I uh, find myself at one of the world's leading cybersecurity companies, but still with this original technology forming a key element of the makeup of that business. And it was that path which invests in digital and deep tech innovations to build a future we can all trust. Now, I know that's a, a subject that's going to be close to everybody's heart that's listening to this. But can you expand on what that means for people that are maybe hearing about you for the first time? Yeah, so so Tala's is obviously a, a, a large company with um, involvement across a lot of sectors, whether that's defense, ground transportation, aerospace, or even space itself. Um, so you mentioned deep tech. Um, yeah. Since joining Tales, I've been staggered by the amount and the type of R&D which takes place. And I've seen that reflected in some amazing innovations, whether it's connectivity and security for connected cars and connected medical devices that we hear more and more about and, and the risks, of course, associated with them. Um, the digitalization of um, railways. Uh, but then even... W- we're involved in um, projects to bring back samples of the surface of the planet Mars back to Earth um, and understanding the nature of dark matter. So it really is a, uh, uh, an amazing place to work and um, tremendously broad scope of, of innovation. Um, in terms of, you mentioned the, the, the um, tagline, building a future we can all trust. Well, yeah. In cybersecurity, ever since I started in the industry, um, the, the, the lexicon is one around trust. Um, it forms the cornerstone of all interactions in the digital world. And we're seeing face-to-face transactions, physical signatures, uh, traditional banking being replaced by digital counterparts. We're all becoming familiar with that. And that has accelerated rapidly um, thanks to the COVID pandemic. And, and so that's now extending into the realms of artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things. We mentioned self-driving cars, connected devices, 
And so trust becomes more and more important. And that's whether that's trust of a, of a, of a per, persona, an organization, or even a machine. We need to feel confident as individuals, as corporates, as, as governments, sharing sensitive data, secret data, um, executing contracts, financial transactions, essentially placing trust in the identities of people and things in the digital world. And, and that's what we're predominantly involved in. I, I like to step back a step. In, in cybersecurity, questions around cyber are often cited as reasons to say no. Yeah. Um, we can't do that because it's not secure, it's unsafe, or it's not permitted. Um, regulation doesn't permit it. And um, at the same time, I think innovations in cybersecurity can help individuals and organizations to say yes and move forward rather than say no, put the blockers on and hold back. And that, that's the interesting part for me. It really is. And, and one of the reasons I invited you on the podcast today was to talk a little more about how data sovereignty is not just about localization. It's also about ensuring that nation states have the ability to store their data in their own country and control access to it. And this is such a big, big talking point at the moment. So can you offer an overview on that and, and what you're seeing in the industry now? Data sovereignty, it's... Um rapidly gone from a buzzword to a, a critical topic in yeah. most organizations. I think you and your listeners, we're all aware of the massive explosion of data as, a, as our world becomes increasingly digital. And the cloud has obviously contributed hugely to this. You can now store data. Companies can store data elastically, on demand, and at massive scale. And this this delivers huge benefits in terms of cost efficiency, agility, scalability, but inevitably it brings around issues about the security of the data. The data is no longer stored in the secure confines of a physical data center, but it's, so to speak, out there in the wild. So again, we, we always come back to this issue of trust. Um, organizations and we as individuals, we're keen to, to reap the benefits of um, the cloud and of the digital transformation that we that we currently find ourselves in, but we need to be assured that sensitive data is not being compromised, it's not being shared or even stolen by the wrong people, and this is where digital sovereignty comes in. Um, a, a real hot topic, particularly here in the EU, but across the world. Um, I saw an interesting statistic from the World Economic Forum that estimates that over 90% of all the data in the Western world is stored on servers owned by US-based companies. Cool. Um, so, so not surprisingly, I think this was one of the drivers when European governments um, uh, pushed out the GDPR regulation. I think this was uh, a key concern there, um, and along with the associated measures to address the issue of, of sovereignty. Um, you mentioned localization of data, which is a um, is becoming more and more prevalent. This essentially restricts the flow of data by making it uh, mandatory for companies collecting critical consumer data to store it, to process it within a national sovereign border. And, and that's one way to solve the problem. We, we see a um, fairly strong shift towards data uh, localization. 
But at the same time, we see a reaction against it because it is perceived as an inhibitor to business. So on, on the localization side, at Thales, we're seeing an increasing number of initiatives uh, around this. We're seeing more nation states collaborating with cloud service providers to establish national sovereign clouds. You can see this in the news in whether it's France, Germany, and, and around the world. Um, obviously, a key driver for this is organizations who simply cannot permit data to reside outside of their sovereign borders. So the, the usual um, suspects there, whether it's government, defense, anything around critical infrastructure, any of the highly regulated industries where um, we don't want data to be to be simply um, distributed uh, around the world in, in virtual locations. So it's no surprise to see nation states supporting the creation of these sovereign clouds for in-country storage of data. In fact, we're even seeing significant what we term repatriation of data. So data that was all already out there in cloud infrastructures around the world being repatriated back into sovereign clouds. So there are many scenarios where localization and minimization of data, where there's a strong emphasis behind this. And if we look on a global scale again, there are also more than 1,800 data compliance laws companies must comply with now. So can you tell me a bit more about how that surge in regulation is also creating a shift towards that containment and localization of data? And what do you think that means for the the future? Mm. So there's a huge amount of regulation and it's much more in the public eye now. Regulation is nothing new to the highly regulated industries, the sort of industries I just mentioned. Um, But the introduction of GDPR, for example, combined with the proliferation of the cloud and the proliferation of hybrid IT, so across multiple cloud uh, infrastructures, has made data privacy regulation relevant to all organizations, not just highly regulated ones. Um, Then we saw the the invalidation of the the privacy shield, the... the, um, the, the, um, EU-US Privacy Shield in 2020 um, by the now infamous Schrems II ruling um, by the Court of Justice of the of the EU, uh, which has caused digital sovereignty now to become an urgent topic for practically every major enterprise. And the, these enterprises are faced with a, a conundrum. Data is one of the key currencies in the global economy. I think that's that's well understood. Companies need to share data within their company, but also outside of corporate boundaries um, in order to better serve their customers, to extract value, to monetize data, to collaborate more efficiently. And now they're forced into this kind of balancing act where where on the one hand, they need to share and access data on 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 a broad scale, yet they need to maintain compliance with Um, multiple regulations. As you mentioned, there are thousands of regulations um, out there now. Not complying isn't really an option, Um, certainly not in the longer term. We've seen there are significant legal penalties and fines, damage to reputation and so on. So companies need to do something um, about, about this. And they're asking themselves, how does this regulation impact our cloud strategy? 
can my cloud service provider ensure that, that I remain compliant? Can we deploy data to certain regions or not? Do we need to deny access to remote workers? It creates a, a mass of complex questions for, um, for companies. And it, although it's still early days and, and companies are still grappling with these questions, we see a number of approaches. There is still the approach, do nothing. Kind of rabbit in the headlines, <laughs> if, you, if you want to put it like that. That won't last for long. It's risky. It's potentially hugely damaging. It's potentially hugely expensive. Um, localization and the use of sovereign cloud, we, we just discussed briefly there. We're seeing an, an extension there beyond those, those critical industries because there are a lot of um, smaller companies, you know, the so-called SMBs or SMEs, who, um, whilst they don't really need to share data on a global scale, GDPR and the, the regulations apply as equally to them as it would do to a global bank or a large pharmaceutical company. But these small companies, they don't really have the ex expertise, the resources around risk and compliance, and they certainly don't tend to have uh, vast cybersecurity resources. Um, and so, but, but at the same time, they do need to embrace the cloud. They need to embrace the digital economy in many cases in order to survive. Um, and so there's, I think there's a significant comfort for for this profile of company to, to be had in utilizing a sovereign cloud provider within their own national perimeter. Uh, they can still derive the benefits of, of, of cloud, but they, um, they aren't open to the risks around a, a compliance breach. So I think it's interesting for, um, across the board. But, it, but it's a very different story for global organizations with that need, with that desire to leverage uh, hybrid IT and to, and to share, to store data across uh, multiple cloud service providers on a, on a global basis. For these types of organization, localization is far too restrictive. Um, and we're seeing increasing numbers getting very serious about their digital sovereignty strategy. Um, they can implement measures to bring the protection of the data transferred between sovereign jurisdictions to the level required by the local legislation. It's, it's easier said than done in the cloud, but there's no doubt that these organizations that take charge of their digital sovereignty will find it easier to migrate uh, sensitive workloads into the cloud and to to avoid the the need to localize everything, because that that's simply it's not meaningful for uh, in the in the digital first economy um, to to localize everything. You you hear a lot about data being the new oil. That's an old cliche, but what I would say is if if data is the new oil, then there does need to be a pipeline to enable it to flow. Love that. And I'm curious, do you think that the public and the average user will also become increasingly aware of these challenges too, especially with individual data sovereignty on the horizon and people beginning to care about how their data is used? And, and do you think to get to that, we will get to that place where individuals control where their data is and, and how it's used? How far away is that, do you think? I think it's so. So firstly, I think the the public already are highly sensitized to this, um, but I do think it's it's quite a way away. Um, the 
data privacy has definitely moved to the forefront of the digital economy with privacy laws like GDPR becoming much more consumer-oriented. Um, the public is becoming more aware of these challenges and more concerned about data privacy breaches. We all know that consumer data is a key asset for many commercial organizations, yet consumers have got very little visibility into how their data is actually used. And regulations like GDPR have given the individual certain powers, but it's still very limited. You know, customer data, the, the analytics performed on personal data is critical to, to corporates to, to tailor their customer interactions, to have a better interaction, a more convenient uh, interaction with customers, which benefits a customer um, and, and the corporate. And it, but it's also critical to companies to drive loyalty, to monetize this data and, and drive growth in their revenues. And there's definitely an imbalance between the, the degree of analytics and insight that corporates have into personal data and the degree of transparency and control that the individual has over the use of their data. So you asked about the, the concept of individual data sovereignty. Yeah. Um, you know, th this seeks to restore the balance in that the individual themselves um, regains control over what elements of digital information are shared and, and what isn't. So in, instead of having critical pieces of private data of the individual stored at countless different locations, um, in this case, the information stays with the individual. And it's the individual alone that possesses the authority over who can gain access to their um, sensitive data and who can't, and on what basis and for what duration. Um, this is quite a, a shift. It certainly shifts the balance back in, in the favor of the individual. Um, you know, the clue is in the term self-sovereign identity. The individual is in charge of their own digital identity and can be kind of fairly compensated for the usage of what is very valuable information. Um, all, all sounds great at the conceptual level. You, you asked it, is it far, is it achievable? Is it, yeah. is it far away? This kind of, a, of an identity system uh, where, where the individuals control their, their own digital identities and data requires a, a decentralized approach. It requires a distributed, scalable infrastructure as opposed to the kind of centralized infrastructure. There are technologies which can, um, can help with this. You know, probably the best suited is, is blockchain which um, you know, many of your listeners will have heard about probably um, along with cryptocurrencies. But this is a technology which enables credentials to be managed using crypto wallets. That doesn't have to be a Bitcoin. It can be any form of data. And that's on a distributed ledger. So it's underpinned by cryptography and public key infrastructure to deliver a secure distributed ledger which provides a potential answer to, to this problem. What I would say, though, is as well as the technology, there's got to be the collective will to make this happen. Um, and I think this will end up being, you know, this is the, the, the classic uh, battle between the, the, your, your data privacy activists and, and big business. So time will tell. I, I wouldn't like to speculate as to 
whether whether we get there or, or how long it takes, but it's certainly going to be um, a, an interesting um, interesting to watch how that unfolds. And as we record this podcast today, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. And instead of the world being open for business for everyone, there seems to be more and more barriers coming up. So I'm curious, how do you think businesses will circ- circumnavigate these geographical barriers as they start to arise uh, throughout the year? So as far as the barriers are concerned and, and the impact on business, I think a lot depends on the, the actual teeth of the regulation. Uh, a while back, I read an, an analogy by the um, data privacy uh, activist, Max Schrems, um, and he made an analogy with motorway speed cameras. I thought that was great. You know, putting regulation in place, it's like putting speed cameras on the roads. Um, we've all been there. You know, people will still speed, but they will also try to avoid the cameras. They'll comply where there is a camera, maybe not where there isn't. And I think the more cameras in the right places will inevitably drive compliance and cause people to slow down. I think that's a great analogy with data privacy regulation. Um, In terms of how businesses will respond, I think there will inevitably be more a move to more localization. That seems like um, an easy fix. I think there will be a degree of data repatriation. Um, And this supported by local offerings from the cloud service providers. I think we'll we'll see more investment in localized data centers to circumnavigate the geographical barriers. Um, And we'll see the hyperscalers investing in the the cloud infrastructure to support these national sovereign clouds. Um, To to support businesses in in what is an increasingly regulated context. But we mentioned earlier about the the data pipeline. It, It has to flow. Um, the the ability to store and access and analyze data real time across global locations underpins a business of the majority of multinational com- uh, companies. And also, as, as we mentioned earlier, some smaller companies too. And in order to maintain this flow, uh, I think companies will continue to rely as far as they can on, on legal means, such as standard contractual clauses, which govern data flows, but I think these also have an uncertain future. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see further legal challenges like a, a Schrems 3, which, which would go after these contractual clauses and, and try to invalidate those. So smart companies will invest ahead of time in a, in a comprehensive strategy around digital sovereignty, um, which will encompass a mixture of, of these measures. So minimize the amount of data you hold localize where you can but but where this but where this doesn't make sense and and companies need the flexibility to use multi-cloud infrastructures and and remain compliant a um a framework around digital um digital sovereignty will will be required um and csps uh, the cloud service providers we, we already see them delivering things like secure enclaves um, external key management to support this. Uh, I'll just say a couple of words to, to explain there. Um, in order to, to implement a, um, a, a secure um, digital transformation uh, and a, a, a sort of watertight strategy around digital sovereignty, 
it's it, the the key is to protect the data and to protect the, and to control access to the data but before you do that you have to actually know where is the data yeah. what what data is subject to regulation do i have that do i have a lot of it where does it reside so the first thing um corporates need to to take into account is the discovery of the data can i find it can i classify it how big is the problem that i have and if i still wish to be able to share that data um, across sovereign boundaries, I need to protect it in some way. And that would typically be by encrypting it. So if I, if I encrypt the data, then I, um, I secure that from prying eyes, whether that's um, malicious actors, whether that's hackers, or whether indeed it's a, a third-party government um, surveillance. So, so I encrypt the data, and then the, the critical element is I hold the keys to that data, and this is what the um, the European, the EU Data Protection Board recommend as as one of the supplementary measures is to actually encrypt the data and hold the keys within the sovereign boundary. And, and in that way, um, it is a form, it, it is a way of achieving something that is is tantamount to localization, because that data is is meaningless to third parties unless they hold the keys. Uh, and so what we are discussing and, and implementing with the, with the majority of our um, uh, major customers is this: these three principles of discovering the data, protecting it, and controlling access to that data. And I think that is the, the third and, and critical element, along with minimizing and localizing. We're never going to, in, in our... Um, digital first era, we're never going to reach a point where all data can be localized within national boundaries. And so it, it's this kind of digital um, sovereignty strategy, which will enable companies to continue to do um, business in a meaningful way. And I am conscious we've talked a lot about challenges and obstacles that need to be overcome in the industry. But on a more optimistic note, what tech trends particularly excite you? Is there, is there anything that uh, you're monitoring closely? Yeah, there are a number of trends. So blockchain, cryptocurrencies is always interesting, not not just for the for the technical element, but I think you know the the volatility, the ag- exaggerated impact of of market factors in that area is. It's very interesting for someone who studied economics. Uh, that that's interesting to uh, to monitor. On the on the crypto front, um, you know, I think the next really big thing is is quantum. Um, crypto has always been an arms race, as you know. So yeah. so, and and for for a number of years now, there's a discussion about quantum computing, which would take computing power to a whole new level, and which would potentially um, render today's cryptographic defenses powerless. Um, we hear about the crypto apocalypse. Um, it's, it kind of sounds alarmist, but it will eventually happen. And so there's a massive amount of research going into post-quantum cryptography, um, you know, which would enable conventional computers to withstand attacks by uh, large-scale, large-scale quantum computers. That is, I think, one of the, the future battlegrounds that we need to prepare for today. We're, we're putting a lot of effort into that um, at Thales um, because this isn't something that 
we will be able to respond to when it happens. This needs to be prepared up front. So, yeah, I think quantum is um, is really interesting and, and absolutely critical to the world of crypto. Excellent. And what about yourself, Antares? What's next for you? What's your, your big focus going to be? So predominantly what we've been discussing today, yeah. uh, Neil, there's so much happening in the area of digital sovereignty. Um, you know, for the last few years, there's been a huge emphasis on data transformation as, as organizations respond to the needs of their customers and the, the digital engagement with them. Um, you know, th- this has accelerated much more rapidly than we and I think anybody would have expected um, as a result of the pandemic um, and, and how companies have had to scramble to respond to the, the, the pandemic, the, the rapid shift to home working, home education, shift to online and remote services, you know, an, an economy where the traditional business models are rapidly becoming no longer fit for purpose. So in the coming years, I think this, this digital first economy that has been created very, very rapidly needs to catch up on the data privacy front. We're in the early days of, without wanting to sound like a cliche, a seismic shift. And I think this will keep us busy for quite some time. I I like where we are at the intersection of of this vast digital transformation and this um, very significant change in regulation. Um, It's a very interesting place to be as we see how things pan out in terms of both the digital revolution and the necessary controls around it. Um, As I mentioned at the outset, our goal is to play a central role, but kind of at the heart of this intersection and to help deliver the assurance and the trust that's necessary to support the digital first economy, to support the innovation um, that we're seeing, but in turn to also to be able to deal with the objections and to turn these objections into opportunities um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in, in cyber, uh, I see one of our key roles as turning no's into yeses for the right reasons. Uh, and I think there's, uh, this is going to keep us busy in, in the arena of um, sovereignty for quite some time to come. Well, we've covered so much in a short amount of time today. But as we've become, well, as we've come full circle, I always like to ask my guests uh, if there is a song, movie, book, or anything that has inspired or helped them in their career, and share that story and choice with the listeners, and leave everyone on an inspirational note. Is there anything that springs to mind for you that you'd uh, like to leave everyone listening with? So, I I love music, yeah. love reading, love movies. Um, it's a stretch for me to put my finger on a particular song or movie that's contributed to my career. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, in terms of books, um, there's a book I read quite some years ago. I kind of judge a book by how well I remember it or whether, whether I still think about it four or five years after reading it. And, and one book I found very interesting was The Chimp Paradox by Professor Stephen Peters. I, d- I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's... Um, it's a great metaphor for the workings of the mind. It, it provides some insights into our behavior and some some means of keeping things in, in perspective. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, that book, Neil. I'm familiar with it, but I've not actually read it. So I've got a feeling it's going to be added to my wish list after, after listening to you here. Well, it, it's, it's an interesting book because it, it basically talks about the, the um, operating systems within the mind. 
Yeah. And and a lot about the chimp, which is the uncontrolled kind of emotional, irrational element within the mind um, versus the human, more rational uh, um, consciousness. And the, the inner chimp is essentially emotional, greedy, lazy, paranoid, neurotic. Uh, and the book is all about how to how to box the chimp, not to ignore it, to, to listen to it and let it let it have its say, um, but then to um, to apply the kind of human element um, in order to to kind of reach the right decisions and 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 attain happiness, success, etc. Um, it's not. It, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's. It, it, it draws on some very old ideas. I think it draws on Freudian ideas about the id and the ego. But I found it a very interesting read, and I took one really useful tip from it, something that they call the helicopter perspective. And again, it's kind of common sense, but uh, uh, it's something that I do recall from time to time, that when you find yourself in an incredibly stressful or what you perceive as an incredibly stressful situation, imagine you're hovering in a helicopter above that. Yeah. And you know how does how important is that? compared to the rest of your life how meaningful will that be in a year five years ten years and, it, and I think it's very useful for, for putting things into perspective and I know that uh, the author of this book has helped a, a lot of business people but also um, a lot of sports people um, I've got quite a, a background in competitive sport and I, and I could see how this would work for sports people but if I had to answer your question really honestly, I think that the, the greatest non-business influence on my career does come from the sporting world. Yeah. Um, in, in my younger days, uh, I was a competitive powerlifter, um, and I was I was lucky enough to have a fantastic coach who sadly passed away a few months ago. But I, powerlifting, for those who, who aren't familiar, it's a very extreme sport yeah. where you ask your body to do things it typically isn't expected to do. And I would say that what I learned in powerlifting about visualization, planning, execution, and overcoming barriers has been indispensable to me in, in my career more than perhaps um, movies and songs and, and yeah. even book, it, books. Wow, what a great story. I absolutely love it. And that is the reason that I ask that question every time. And for anyone listening that would like to learn a little bit more about everything that we've discussed today at Thales and, and everything that you're doing or or even contact your team, what's the best starting point? I, I would say the best starting point would be to uh, ping me on social media. Um, yeah. I'm available on, on LinkedIn and uh, happy to get into discussions on this or any other topics around uh, data governance, cybersecurity, um, happy to start those conversations. Brilliant. Well, I'll add a link to that uh, to your website as well, just to get uh, so anyone can listening can find you nice and easy. But love chatting with you. Like I said a few moments ago, we've covered so much in a short amount of time around data sovereignty and localization, etc. But more than anything, I think it was your very personal story that brought everything to life. And I had no idea you were going to talk about powerlifting at the end, and that's something that's you know, <laughs> <laughs> blown me away. But thank you so much for sharing that with me today. That's been a pleasure, Neil. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all for this bonus episode. 
Stay tuned for the next episode of the Talus Security Sessions podcast as we tackle topics including ransomware and the increasingly blurred lines between information technology and operational technology. Love this episode of the Talus Security Sessions podcast? Search us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast service to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to visit us at cpl.talusgroup.com to access previous episodes, bringing you insights from industry experts on the latest cloud and data security news and trends. Thank you for listening.